Open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 7. We're going to finish up this chapter uh, today and try to wrap up Stephen's uh, important sermon that he gives before his um, stoning, before being the first martyr of the early church. And, and there's a lot packed into, there's about 40 some odd verses in here this morning. I don't intend to get into these verses verse by verse. There are some key observations that I want to pull out of this text. And really, when, we, when we've looked at uh, Acts chapter 7 over the last few weeks, we've, we've bro- at least I decided to break it down in terms of the gospel. There's one gospel. From beginning to end, it's the same gospel that the just shall live by faith, that we're saved by God's grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Period. There's nothing that you can add to or take away from that. And the gospel that we have and we share and we live by today is the same gospel that Abraham knew. It's the same gospel that Joseph and the patriarchs knew. And it's the same gospel that Moses actually knew. And so we're going to look at the correlation and and some of the contrast between uh, the gospel according to Moses and then how all those things that Moses taught the Israelites, how they have been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's really what Stephen is getting to in this entire monologue. As you, as you, if you've had time to read through Acts chapter 7, Stephen's complete basis for his um, discussion with the Sanhedrin is simply this, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that the Israelites had put their hope and their trust in. Going back to Abraham, going back to Joseph and the patriarchs, the temple, the sacrificial system, everything that Moses had given them in the law of the Lord, from the first five books of the Bible to all of the prophets, that Jesus Christ is that one unique historical figure who has fulfilled everything that the Israelites were waiting for and looking for in the Messiah. But but unfortunately, many of the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders of this day, had rejected Jesus. And so they, by their own hardening of their own hearts, and that's what Stephen's going to get into here a little bit today, they had actually rejected the one true, one and only Son of God whom they had claimed to have been waiting for and looking for, and they completely missed it. And so that's why Stephen's um, uh, proclamation, if you will, in this passage of Scripture is such an indictment on the religious leaders of the day, and it cost him his life. It cost him his life. And so We're not going to get into every single verse in Acts chapter 7, but if you can see there, beginning in uh, verse 17, uh, Stephen, he's taken us through Abraham, he's taken us through um, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, through Joseph and his time in Egypt, and of course we know that after the Israelites were in Egypt for um, a period of about 400 years, uh, there was a Pharaoh who who, who was raised up to leadership who did not recognize Jacob and Joseph and his family, and he began to enslave the Hebrew people and put them in severe oppressive bondage to accomplish his building projects there in the land of Egypt. And it is at that point in time, after this this period of time of bondage and enslavery, that the uh, Hebrew people, the Israelites, begin to call out to the Lord for some type of deliverance, for some type of relief, and that is where Moses enters the picture. And, of course, we know Moses was a prince of Egypt, and he was raised up in Pharaoh's house. And so basically what Stephen does is that he, basically, he recaps the life of Moses and he shows us how God is fulfilling and has fulfilled everything that Moses predicted and prophesied in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so I may touch on a couple of these verses as we go through them together, but if you can kind of try to put your historical thinking caps on, remember the, the Exodus story from the, from the book of Exodus. We'll, we'll refer to some of that today. And then we're going to draw out some really good observations, I hope, 
for you this morning. So five key observations that I found in this passage when we look at the gospel according to Moses. Key observation number one. The condition of the Hebrews in Egypt, okay, provides a practical picture of original sin. Now let's think about this for just a second. Here in in Christ Church, in most Orthodox evangelical churches, we affirm the doctrine, and you've probably heard this before, the doctrine of original sin. What is original sin? Original sin is the teaching that the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, that God put a curse upon them and the human race, and that from every generation born after them was born inherently in a condition of sinfulness, alienated from God, separated from God, just simply because of our sinful nature that we're born with. And we can look at that today and look at the world around us and look at our, even our children, how much we love our children, and we can recognize that the, the doctrine of original sin can be tested and it can be observed in our world today. We don't have to be taught how to sin, do we? It's just something that we naturally know how to do. Why? Because that's this doctrine that all of us are born. See, there are many religions and other teachings and and spiritual uh, teachers out there that will teach that man is born inherently good. Some, Some teachers will teach that when we're born, we're born with like a clean slate. And then depending on how good we do or how bad we do, that's just kind of this weight, this system of, of, of weights that, that the more good we do, the better we are, and the better relationship we are with God, or the worse that we do, then we're in trouble. And a lot of uh, religious systems teach this, this clean slate. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because... All have what? All have sinned. That's a very, very simple summary of the doctrine of original sin. Now, let's think about it from a practical, physical way that the Israelites, the Israelites, think. remember, they went into Egypt, a free people, under the, the blessing and, and under the favor of Pharaoh, but over time, these people became slaves of Egypt. Now, every child that was born right here in Moses' generation, they were born as Hebrews, Israelites, into their family. They're in the land of Egypt, and they were born into what? Slavery. They did not get to choose that. They didn't have a choice of what they were going to be born into. They were just automatically born into this um, social status of being enslaved by the Egyptian People, So they didn't choose it. It was just simply their reality. And so they were effectively stuck in like this perpetual generational slavery with no way out. And listen, there was no power that they had to change their situation. They were powerless to change their situation. And so that's what the Bible teaches us about being born with its its inherent sinful nature. We receive that from our parents, and we pass that on to our own children. And it goes all the way back again, as we just read in Romans 5, to our original parents, Adam and Eve. That's this doctrine of original sin. Now, Jesus said it this way. He says, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus recognized, and he affirmed this doctrine of original sin. He said, all of us who sin, we are enslaved to sin, and therefore the Son has come to set us what? To set us free. So now we're talking about spiritual redemption, being freed from this spiritual bondage that we have and the power of sin over us. And so just like the Hebrews in Egypt... We don't have any power to save ourselves. We don't have the power to overcome our sinful condition on our own. We can't just try harder and do better and work harder and and get ourselves out of this perpetual bondage of sin. It takes someone greater than us, outside of us, who has to come and redeem us or to 
save us. So apart from Jesus Christ, we are like the, Egypt, we are like the Hebrews in Egypt. We are in this perpetual generational bondage to sin. So the gospel says that we need a deliverer. Well, that's exactly who Moses was. Moses was a deliverer, and he is symbolic. When, he, when we think about the call and the mission of Moses, his purpose and role as the deliverer of the Israelites to, to deliver them and redeem them out of Egypt, it is very symbolic of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There in Acts chapter 7, verse 20, look at what it says. It says, at this time Moses was born, and it says, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Some of your translations may say, he was no ordinary child. And we know this, Moses was, was no ordinary child. There was something unique and distinct about Moses, so much so that his parents were willing to save his life from the hands of Pharaoh and hide him for three months. And then, of course, we know the story is they put him into the basket and, and under God's sovereign protection, and he floated down and was in, eventually rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, and there he was saved, and he was raised as a prince of Egypt. But Moses was a deliverer, and when God came to Moses, he called him to deliver his people, because Moses was of the Hebrew race. Uh, in, in Acts 7.37, Stephen also refers to Moses, and he says, Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament that were pointing the Israelites to the coming of the Messiah was that there would be a prophet from among Israel, from among the people of the Hebrews, and he would be like Moses. Of course, we know he would be greater than Moses in every respect and in every way, but he would be like Moses. In other words, he would be a great leader. He would be a great servant. He would be a great deliverer. He would be a great redeemer of the Hebrew people, of the Israelites. And so the, the Israelites were looking for someone who was able to save and deliver them, just like Moses was called to deliver the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. And so Jesus infinitely is greater than Moses. That's what Stephen is saying here. Now remember, Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses. But Stephen was never speaking against Moses. He was just speaking in favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the, the religious leaders of Stephen's day right here, the Sanhedrin, they couldn't really reconcile the fact that Moses was the one who predicted that Jesus would come as Messiah. So they were rejecting Jesus at the same time, affirming Moses, and they didn't realize that Moses was the one who wrote about who? He wrote about Jesus. And that's exactly what Stephen is trying to get to here. And so Jesus is our Redeemer, our Savior, our Deliverer, okay? So he came as no ordinary child born of a virgin, right, conceived of the Holy Spirit, to seek and save those who were lost in bondage to sin. That was the entire mission of <clears throat> Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way. You see that just at the right time, when we were still powerless, this is Romans 5. Listen to what Paul says. At just the right time, when we were powerless. Now think about the Hebrew people. They were powerless. They had no power, nothing that they had within themselves to overcome the might of the Egyptian um, people and Pharaoh. And then Paul says, we were the same way when it came to our bondage to sin. It says, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says this, for God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus Christ doesn't come to us when we get free. He comes to us to set us free. Jesus Christ doesn't come to us when we get our life in order and get our act together. 
Jesus Christ comes to us to get our life in order and so that we can get our act together because of the saving power and the work that he does in and through us. That's the same thing that the Hebrew people needed. They needed somebody to come and get them out of the situation that they were in so that they could learn to be free because they were powerless. And, and the Lord didn't wait for the, for the Hebrew people to free themselves before he came to establish this relationship and this covenant with them. No, he came to get them when they were in the most powerless position that they could possibly be in. That's how Jesus comes to you and me. And we need to thank God for that because think about it. What if God was waiting for us to get our lives right, to set ourselves free, to, to overcome our own sin before he came to establish a relationship with us? None of us would ever get there, would we? We would never get there. The book of Colossians says that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So how does Jesus save and how did God save the Israelites? Well, think back to the Exodus story. What a beautiful story. Remember, the Lord came to Moses. He said, I'm about to send the angel of death into the camp. He says, I'm going to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. He says, but you will be saved if you do this. Take a what? Take a lamb, an unblemished, young, male lamb without defect, without fault. And you're going you're gonna to tie that lamb up. And listen, this is what's so amazing. The, the Israelites were called to basically take a pet. You name this lamb. You love on this lamb. You let your kids play with this lamb. You observe this lamb over a period of days. And then what's going to happen? You're going to have to kill this lamb. You're going to have to slay this precious, innocent, this little lamb didn't do anything wrong. But you're going to take its life, and you're going to take its blood, and you're going to paint its blood on the doorpost of your houses and over your doors. And when the angel of death comes through your neighborhood, he will what? Pass over the doors that are painted in the blood of the lamb. Now, that is also symbolic, and you've probably heard this before, but I love to look at the types and shadows and the symbols in the Old Testament that point us to a greater fulfillment, which is Jesus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So the Passover lamb represents the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember John the Baptist as Jesus comes walking down the street, one of the first times that John recognizes him publicly. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter said it this way. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. There's that original sin, right? We inherit these feudal ways, these sinful ways from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but we were ransomed, listen, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So there in the picture of the Passover story, we have the gospel, an unblemished perfect little lamb. We know that Jesus came. He was without sin, right? Living a perfect life. No one could have convict Jesus Christ of sin. He was perfect in every way. And that's why he is officially and ultimately the lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world because he himself is without sin. And there Jesus Christ willingly laid his life down on the cross for us. And so that by us putting our faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for our sin, the angel of death will also do what? Pass over us so that we are, not, we are no longer condemned, but we are saved with eternal life and victory over sin. All the beautiful pictures in the Old Testament showing us that Jesus Christ is indeed the Passover lamb. Just as a secondary note, you know, Jesus was actually crucified on Passover. He was actually crucified. 
as they were as they were as they were killing Passover lambs in the temple to fulfill their acts of obligation. The Israelite the Israelite people were doing this. Jesus Christ was actually nailed to a cross and he died during Passover to ultimately and perfectly fulfill this promise that Jesus Christ only can fulfill. Number four, the Lord gave his law to a people already redeemed, not as a means to redeem his people. Now, it's very important because Stephen talks a lot about the law in this whole passage. And and Stephen refers to the law that was given by the Lord directly. And the Lord is saying that you, Israelites, the leaders of the day, you are rejecting the covenant of the Lord. They thought they were fulfilling God's law, which ironically they at the very same time had rejected because they did not understand that Jesus Christ had come to fulfill the law and redeem God's people. And so the Lord gave the law. Now, this is important that you and I understand this. I think it's important for us as Christians to to understand what happened with the Israelites and how it applies to our life. He gave the law to a people already redeemed, not as a means to redeem his people. Now, there's there's a tension a little bit with us as Christians. What does the law, what purpose does the law? When I talk about the law, we talk about the Ten Commandments, the the moral uh, obligations that we have to obey the Lord. Um, we, talk, we, we look at it from an Old Testament perspective, and, and are the Ten Commandments good? Absolutely. Are the Ten Commandments nullified and void in our life? Not at all. But there was an intended purpose for the law, just like it was for the Israelites. Now think about how the Lord did this. When Israel, when Israel was delivered out of Egypt by all the great wonders and works of God, and they were brought out of Pharaoh's uh, power to the Red Sea. They passed through the waters. When they came out on the other side of those baptismal waters of the, the Red Sea, Israel was a new nation. They were a free nation. It was almost like they were born again. It was almost like they were born again. They were no longer under slavery in Egypt. They were under the leadership of the Lord on the other side, a new nation. Now God had delivered them. He had saved them. And so the Lord's intention was to redeem Israel and to take them home, right? They weren't living in their home. We're going to get to that in just a second. So he wanted to take them home. Well, in order to get them home and in order to teach the Israelites how to live like God's people, he had to give them some standards to live by. Why? Because where had they been living for 400 years? In Egypt. And undoubtedly, they had become accustomed to the, to the, the laws and the pagan gods and, and some of the pagan practices that the Egyptians practiced. They, they had grown comfortable in their surroundings. They had grown comfortable there in that land, but it wasn't their home. And so as the Lord redeemed them, he said, I've got to get my people to understand who I am and how to relate to me. And therefore, he gave the Israelites who were already redeemed, he gave them the law. And that's the very same purpose that the Lord has for us as his church. He saved us from sin and death so that we could show the world who he is and what he is like. And that was his intended purpose for Israel. He wanted Israel to represent him on a greater capacity to all of the other nations around him to be a light to the Gentiles. That's the same thing that we are called to be as the church. So the law was never meant as a means of salvation for God's people. But it was rather a means of sanctification for God's people so that they could learn how to become like God and how to relate to God. John Constable says it this way, God did not give the law as a means to justify unbelievers, but as a means of sanctification, rules for living for a redeemed people. It clarified for them that purity and holiness should characterize their lives as the people of God. Now, why why am I talking about this? 
Because it's the same way for you and me today. Did you know that? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3.20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Now, we could read something like that and think, well, then the law is of no use. What's the point of us having the law of God if we're not going to be declared righteous and no one can be righteous in the sight of God by observing the works of the law? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question. D.L. Moody, Moody, one of the great uh, theologians, he said it this way. He said, God being perfect had to give a perfect law. So the law is what? It's perfect. Is there anything wrong with the law? Not at all. And the law was given not to save men, but to measure them. I like that. So why do we have the law today? What purpose does the law serve in your life and in my life today? Well, it shows us our need for a Savior. The law simply exposes our sinfulness. Because when we look at just the Ten Commandments today, if we were to take a poll in this room and say, okay, how many of us have observed perfectly and obeyed the Ten Commandments today, not stumbling at one part of it? How many of us would have a 100% success rate? I don't think anybody would, right? Because none of us are perfect. All of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And that law is perfect. And that's God's standard or his way of showing us, this is what I'm expecting of you. This is what I'm demanding of you. This is what you should be striving for as a child of God, as a redeemed believer in Jesus Christ. I do have rules and and precepts and and, uh, ways to live before me and before the world. And so, in other words, it never was intended to save us because God only gives us his law after we are saved. And after we're saved, we are learning to relate to him through the purposes of the law. So the law blesses us. Remember, if you obey it, you will be what? You'll be blessed. If you disobey it, you'll be what? You'll be cursed. There's consequences to sin, right? The law is there to protect us because God always wants what's best for you and for me, does he not? We have to believe that, that he has given us his written word because he wants what's best for us. And then he also is trying to teach us how to love God and love others. Because do you know that's what Jesus did in the New Testament? He didn't nullify the law. He didn't nullify the Ten Commandments, did he? He said, I didn't come to condemn the law, but to what? To fulfill it. To completely fulfill it. And then Jesus broke it down this way. That's why we call it the law of the spirit of life, or we call it the law of love. In the New Testament, we call it the law of love. Why? Because basically Jesus broke the law down into these two ways. He says, okay, let's take the Ten Commandments. The first four, the first four commandments, they deal with your relationship with who? This vertical relationship. That's why you don't have any other gods before him and you don't worship any false idols and you don't take the Lord's name in vain and you remember the Sabbath day. All of those things relate to your relationship with God. So God said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That covers all what? All four of them. There you go. It's the law of love. If you love God, you'll keep them. And then the rest of the commandments, the other six, are what? Horizontal commandments. They deal with our relationship with who? Other people. And so then Jesus said, once you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you learn to what? Love your neighbor as. And if you just love your neighbor as yourself, guess what you've fulfilled? All the rest of the commandments, whether it be honoring your father and mother or not being covetous or not uh, telling a lie or committing adultery or murdering your brother or whatever it may be. So we simply love God and love people. Jesus says you have fulfilled the law. And that's what the purpose of the law is for. 
is to teach us how to relate to God, how to love God, and how to love our neighbors. Very, very simple. So the law is good. The law is perfect. It exposes our sin. It exposes our need for Jesus. And it, and it should make us rejoice with a great rejoicing to know that we don't have to be perfect, that we don't have to keep the law to be in right standing with God, right? Because Jesus Christ already has. You see, this is the gospel according to Moses. And here's the last one, the promised land. Remember, the Lord delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Where is he taking them? Taking them to the promise. He's taking them home. Remember, that went all the way back to the promise he made to Abraham. He showed Abraham that land 400 years before. He said, I've given all of your descendants this land. This is your territory. This is your home. Even though Abraham didn't get a chance to see it, but he will one day, right? When Jesus returns, Abraham will get his inheritance one day. But now it was time, after the time of, of uh, the Amorites was fulfilled and the judging of those people in that ungodly land that they were living in, it was time for the Lord to deliver the Israelites out. He delivered them out of Egypt, and he said, I'm taking you home so that you can finally occupy the land that I promised you and your forefathers before you. And so the promised land also is representative of our future hope of heaven and our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Now think about it for just a second. The Lord Jesus Christ said this right before he went to, to the cross and, and was crucified, resurrected, and went back to ascend to the Father in heaven. One of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. What did Jesus say in John 14? He said, if you believe in God, you believe also in me. What does he say? Because in my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions, Okay. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I'm going to prepare a what? A place for you. All believers here can be assured that if you have a relationship and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God is, has actively and presently prepared a place for you in his kingdom. What a promise. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be also, the Israelites were never meant to live in Egypt. That was not their home. They learned to adapt. A lot of them grew comfortable, unfortunately. You know what's one of the saddest things about the Exodus story? Is that there was an entire generation that was still so in love with Egypt that they didn't even get to see the what? They didn't get to see the promised land. They died out there in the wilderness because they didn't have faith that God had something better for them. Now, see, here we are as believers, and we're living in a world that just is not our what? This is not our home. And yet, if I look around the, the, the state of the church today, and I've seen this happen in my own life, you know how easy it, is for, easy it is for us to get attached? We start to get attached to the things of this world. We start to get attached to the comforts that we have. We start to get complacent in our lives and, and, and we get kind of stuck in a rut. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You, maybe you're running the rat race and you can't really slow down to even hear from God. Or you're just stuck in that perpetual rut where you, you wake up, you go to work, you come home, you eat supper, you go to bed. You wake up, you go to work, you make money, you eat supper, you go to bed. I mean, does that define any of our lives? But see, some of that has to do with the fact that we've just gotten so complacent and we've gotten so attached to the things of this world that we really don't want to let go. We forget that we're not a people made for this world in its present state, but we're a people made for heaven. We're to be citizens of heaven. That's why Paul says, set your thoughts on things what? Above, not below. 
And the, and the Israelites, unfortunately, many of them, as they were delivered out of Egypt, they still had their hearts and minds set on the things of Egypt, not trusting that God had a better place in store for them. That's why John would say, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it comes not from the Father, but from the world. The, listen, the world and its desires pass away. Think about that. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen. You see, we are made for the hope of heaven. We are made to be citizens in the kingdom of God. Isn't it time we start living like it right now? Isn't it time that we as the church start living like citizens in the kingdom of God? And, and like Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we are, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all look at the very last passage of Acts chapter 7 with me. Let's, let's just read the stoning of Stephen. Let's, let's think about Stephen now, right? He, he's just walked us through the gospel from beginning to end. And he condemns his peers of his day, the religious leaders of his day. He condemns them with very strong words. Look at what he calls them in verse 51. Stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, accusing them of persecuting the prophets that had gone before them, even to the point of nailing the Son of God to a cross. They approved of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Look at what happened when he, when he condemned his people. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they gnashed their teeth at him. But full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Amen. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. And look, they covered their ears. Can you, can you picture this? They're so enraged and their hearts are so hardened. Stephen had just given them an indefensible account of the gospel. They could not argue with what he had to say. So they couldn't hear anymore what they do. They just covered their ears, gnashed their teeth, and in rage, they just made a mad rush at him and said, we've got to silence him one way or the other. And so they picked up stones, and they stoned him to death, carrying him out of the city. And look at what it says. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees, crying out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. You see, the reason that Stephen had so much confidence and courage to be willing to stand up in his generation, even if it meant his death was before him, was that he knew that he was a citizen of heaven. Amen. And this is what's so beautiful is that Stephen, right before he died, he got to see his faith became sight. He got to see the Lord Jesus. And the one who would, remember, what did Jesus promise us in John 14? I personally have gone to prepare a what? A place for you. So when Stephen looked up to see Jesus, he knew that Jesus was about to receive him at that very moment and give Stephen his rightful place in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. To be there with him in many rooms, many mansions that God has prepared for you and for me. Stephen had one in heaven with his name on it. And as he died and the Lord received his spirit, the Lord was the one who personally gave his place to him in heaven. What a beautiful picture. So Jesus will receive all of us just like he did Stephen preparing a place for us in glory for all who have believed. So here's what I want you to hold on to. I think Stephen was willing to let go of this world. 
He could have have maybe escaped death that day if he wanted to. But that wasn't his calling. That wasn't his cause. He was more devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ than he was to being um, pleasing man, pleasing the man around him. So Stephen was not attached. He didn't hold on to this world, even so much to where he was willing to give his life. So what do we hold on to? Here's your application for the day. Instead of holding on to the things of this world, the the temporary passing away, the things that are going to pass away that are never going to last, let's hold on to the eternal promises of God. And as I said before, let's begin to live like citizens of heaven as we begin to journey through this wicked world. Look, it's okay to to admit this this place is not our home. There's a lot wrong with, with the world around us, right? And it's okay to admit that. But what's not okay is for us to settle and conform to the world around us. Because the Lord Jesus said this. He says, you may be in this world, but we're not to be of it. We're not to be of it. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going uh, to ask Brother John, since he's here, I'm going to ask him to come up and lead us in a time of response. We're going to sing one more song, and then I have a, a little bit of a special uh, announcement that we're going to make uh, before we leave this morning. So we're going to cut things a little bit short today. I'm going to let Brother John pray. So you need to respond, and however you need to respond through our time of singing. And then uh, I'll let Brother John pray for us at this time, and then we'll share our, uh, our special announcement here at the end. Is that, is that a good deal? Thank you guys so much. Brother John, would you close us in a word of prayer? Our praise team, y'all come on up. Father, we've heard today a message that's so plain and so clear and so true and that literally millions of people around the world don't know, never heard, and if they heard it, they'd almost jump for joy and receive it. And I'm afraid we take it as ordinary good preaching. It's not ordinary good preaching. There's a message from God to me, to you. And let us each respond as Holy Spirit leads us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing about the Father's love this morning. Yeah.